Let's just start. Good call. <laughs> All right, we're we're off to the races, everybody. Yeah. Welcome back, friends. We're excited because we're doing something we've never done on the show before. Record one episode. Record one episode. <laughs> um, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do a deep dive into somebody that we think uh, deserves to be deep dove into up there with other filmmakers who normally are. Um, and yeah, it's gonna be fun because John is already, I think, pretty clear headed and confident about why this filmmaker is so worth it to do this with. And I, I am on my way to there, but not as strongly as John. So this will be a fun journey as we go through this and see where we land. But um, yeah, yeah. Who's, it, who's it gonna be, Mr. Dixon? Well. I just want to say that I'm sort of the ferryman on the river Styx. Yeah. And you are like Virgil. That's <laughs> yeah, true. And I'm just taking your your dumb little poet ass along, <laughs> pushing through the waters of Haiti. <laughs> uh, so yeah, this you know this like, is better. Yeah, than I'm excited to be on the boat. I'm excited to be on the boat. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good boat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know the I know the boat is good. I just I've uh, been, I've been alone on this boat for <laughs> for a long time. I'm glad yeah. someone else is. is yeah. I've definitely I've definitely like you know periodically visited you for like long weekends on that boat <laughs> throughout my movie watching career, but I've never done the full journey on the boat. So now it's now now you're gonna have a, a partner. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? There's room for more. I brought a lot of kind bars. There's like there's a ton of water. There's liquid death. We got it all. Oh, so, good. Only Oof, the best. Only the best. And uh, I guess that's not hell. What's the middle one again? Purgatory. Purgatory. Yeah. Yeah. But we're. I mean, hey, if, if this is purgatory, I'm I'm fine staying here. Well, we're in purgatory, but I'm taking us. I'm pedaling upriver. I'm okay. going upriver to paradise right now. So, everyone, hop aboard because. I'm sure you figured it out by the title of the episode, but we're going after the big fish. Bobby. Bobby Z. Bobby Z. Bobby Zemeckis, aka Robert Zemeckis. Yep. Uh, and we're gonna we're gonna do a five-part series here. Yeah. Uh, trying to take <laughs> trying to take this filmmaker into the stratosphere where he so greatly deserves. And I think like the tides have started turning. You have people like um, uh, the, the one of our favorites, the master Japanese filmmaker, Kyoshi Kurosawa, mm -hmm. has uh, recently said some things um, praising Zemeckis. What did he say? Did he say he's the most singular American filmmaker? I think so. Something like that, yeah. Let's take a look. Yeah, well, I guess we should <laughs> quote that since we're going <laughs> to good start into our deep dive episode. Like, what was that thing? <laughs> what was the thing we were going to lead off with? And, Don't worry, uh, we're, still, we're still Oscar bait, folks, so we'll still have to look it up and we'll still leave that in. <laughs> yeah, you want us to try harder, you know what you got to do. That's right. We'll give you that option very soon. Um, oh, okay, yeah. So, Kiyoshi Kurosawa says... Zemeckis is the American film director who makes the most authentic films today. Yeah. And that's coming from 
the great filmmaker, if you don't know who he is, behind Cure and Pulse. And those are the famous ones. He's got plenty of others that are almost as good as those two. Well, Tokyo Sonata is the best. We can battle. Mm, it's good. It's pretty good. You know what? There's really not a bad. Yeah, there's. That's true. Actually, yeah. yeah, they're all good. So our point being, this is a filmmaker who is um, on the experimental side. This is a filmmaker who likes to praise late Godard. Likes to praise uh, the what's his Theo Angiopoulos. Yeah. <laughs> My point is that this is Yoshi <laughs> Kurosawa is uh, what you'd call probably a pretty esoteric filmmaker who has. His, yeah. his hands kind of all over the place. He's a gigantic movie lover. and A huge film nut. Like really, really amazing, amazing taste, I would say. No, we, you need filmmakers like that to just turn you on to other things that aren't just Nicholas Winding Refn. So yep. it's... We, got it's it. we, need more in the, we need more in the room. <laughs> so for him to say that Zemeckis is one of the most authentic filmmakers in the world, that should give anybody a pause. This guy's not losing his marbles yet, I promise you. No, he's a young pup still. He's a young pup, and as a young pup, I have always been the person sounding this alarm. So it gave me, it made me feel seen. And uh, this all kind of started, I think, when I was, for some of our listeners, listened to an older episode where Will likes to rake me over the fire for enjoying and finding a new take on Forrest Gump. I don't remember what your quote is exactly, but he said my opinion was worse than just saying I like it. Oh, did I? That sounds oh, yeah. about right. Yeah. <laughs> you got to so, pull back the soundbite when we get to Forrest Gump. Oh, yeah, because uh, Will will be eating his shoe yep. on that one. Because that's, why, I, that's why you guys listen to this show. We, bo- we both, um, you know, me more than John, but we do eat shoes back and forth and we're always honest about it, so yeah <laughs> yeah i listen i i am just happy to to finally get you on board because i never thought you would go for this idea i was like well, oh. i mean but as soon as you brought it up my every part of me you know like brain guts and heart were immediately like hell yeah because i you are i mean you know i, I love so much of this yeah oh, but yeah. but my my uh better than i used to be but i still have these moments where I'm very susceptible, you know, to groupthink, where it creeps in. And, you know, and that's what that's what happens with something like fucking Forrest Gump or whatever it may be, or American Sniper, which, you know, I'm susceptible to groupthink. Yeah. Where I, where I, I have, which at whatever point it was, I did swallow and, you know, actually like ingest the Kool-Aid for whatever reason. Um, but I am a person who loves more than anything to revisit movies and Forrest Gump has fallen in the steaming pile shit category for me for a long time. Um, so it's time to, it's time to change that. And I mean, look, small spoiler alert. I already texted John this morning, even after the first chunk that we're going to go through in this episode, I can already feel the, the, the winds are changing a little bit. We'll see if, I don't know who knows where I'll end, but it's definitely, I'm definitely more open already than I ever have been to that it, movie. So. It is, it's very shocking by the time. And I, I encourage our listeners to go through this journey with us. These are movies you can find. Most so, of them. If you can't find any of them, hit us up and we'll send them to you. They're like student films and shit. 
Yeah, well, that's actually on the uh, Criterion version of I Want to Hold Your Hand. Both those are on. Oh, there. nice. Oh, I didn't even yeah. know that. I had the Blu-ray and I was like asking you for them. And I was like, oh, yeah. oh I have better copies right here. <laughs> I mean, that's what they're from. But... Yeah, right. I'm just, you know, I, you know me. I am I will never notice that there's a commentary track or a special. Yeah, made, John sleeps on special features, but that's why we're good. We're good yin and yang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a basic bitch. So. <laughs> I, I get right under the heat and then I forget about everything else. But <laughs> yep. um but yeah, so um but, here we are with uh with Robert Zemeckis. I'm very excited about this. And um, this is a filmmaker people probably know. Uh it's probably a name that maybe you don't even like you you know you would know the movies, but you might not even know the name. I was talking to someone the other day who was like, I've never heard of that person. I was like, You've definitely seen at least five or six of this person's movies. Probably half of them. Probably, seriously, probably. I mean, yeah. this is, we're talking the Back to the Future trilogy. We're talking Forrest Gump. We're talking uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Death Becomes Her. Those are like his super popular, you know, castaway. Um, I mean, even What Lies Beneath and Flight, like everyone saw those, whether or right. not they remember them, you know. All these what movies are like if you went to the movies when you were growing up, right? you saw most of Zemeckis' movies. I don't think anyone saw The Walk or Allied or Just Welcome to Marwin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And which one of those is an absolute masterpiece? Which one is a near masterpiece? And which one is pretty not good? Of those You'll three? have to find out. Stick around for episode five. <laughs> yes. When I get to finally, my long gestating uh, conspiracy theory will be. Yeah, which I'm excited too, because Allied's another one that I don't, I don't hate that movie by any stretch, but I definitely didn't give a shit about it. So I'm excited to return to that one as well. Yeah. So moving on. Yeah, let's, let's do it. We're going to dive in to the life of one Robert Zemeckis. Now, this is a... This is a Chicago boy. Yep. Right outside. I forget the name of the town. I wrote it down somewhere. Now I can't find it, but that stuff's not important. I was, we're not going to do this. Like he went to here and then he went to here. Wait, who fucking cared that? No one cares. No. Like he went to a school somewhere. He's, he's Chicago. We just like that. Cause it feels good. Right. Chicago boy. Um. Yeah. He definitely came from a working class background he ain't a nepotism baby that's for sure yeah uh, boy how far we've come so Almost yeah. like bodies 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 yeah uh, yeah we can't get sidetracked on that or the monsters right now nope but let's just say our fangs are sharp <laughs> um but um yeah so he moves to uh california to go to film school and while he's there, he meets a young man named Bob Gale. Now, old Robert and Bob, well, two Bob, the two Bobs, Gale and Zemeckis, they are in film school together. They start writing scripts together. And originally, they had kind of sought to break into the industry, start by making like horror exploitation movies. Because we were talking about, oh, we're going to do this. And Will's like, oh, I hate the movie Bordello of Blood. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Are you bringing that up? And he was like, well, they wrote it. And I was like, oh. Now, some of you might know that Zemeckis was the producer of Tales from the Crypt. So my assumption was, oh, I thought he just 
produced it. I didn't know he wrote it. Well, he didn't write it in the 90s for Dennis Miller. He wrote it in the 70s for John Milius. Mm-hmm. And I am sure the script has changed changed a lot since then. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, I can't imagine. I would, I would fucking kill to read. I want a first draft even. Like, just let me see what they first spit out on that. Yeah. Well, this, I know sometimes we ask our listeners for favors if you can do them for us. So here's an actual one that yeah. we will compensate you for. We are looking for the original Bordello of Blood script. Don't give us the revision. We, we I've seen that. Yeah. I've looked at that. Ain't got That's it. on IMSDB and we don't need it. Don't need it. <laughs> but we would like the original Bordello of Blood script. But they also had a script, apparently, they tried to sell the Milius called Rape Squad. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, which I'm sure Milius loved <laughs> also if you guys if you don't know John Milius that's another filmmaker we could spend weeks on um, that's another guy you've seen movies of even if you don't recognize the name but we'll, we'll stay on track not get too sidetracked but it's just important that legends were finding each other this early you know and that's when Milius is here yeah I believe he spoke at their uh, at USC and somehow uh, these two, Gale and Zemeckis, were known to have like a quite a rambunctious energy. So much so that when they eventually started writing for Spielberg, they just burst into his office and like ran past his secretary with like cans of their student films and scripts and were like, please. And Spielberg kind of did the same, how he got a job at Universal back in the day. So I think game recognized game. And then they realized, wow, when he loved it, he flipped shit for Field of Honor. Yes, yes. He so, shit. There's like a, there's a, I, I can't find it again, but there's a brief little interview with Spielberg when he talks about them bursting into his office and showing him Field of Honor. And he was like, holy shit, yes. <laughs> so they're, they're writing scripts. They're trying to break in on the exploitation market. But while Zemeckis is in school, he makes two student films. The first is one called The Lift, which is uh, so awesome. It's such a student film, but it's so fucking great. Like, <laughs> feel of a, what a first student film could be and not make you want to like pluck your eyes out. This is it. <laughs> it's like we can't even really like describe it, I feel like, because it's, it's a short film, but it involves someone's problem with the elevator. Yeah. And I'll just leave it there because it really, it's almost one that if you're going to watch these movies along with us, it might even hit you harder getting through some of them than watching it and being oh, like, oh, yeah. shit, you can see the nucleus is like all these things are already forming for this filmmaker. His his sardonic humor, um, these kind of absurdist ideas about modern technology. And, and his obs- like obsession with machinery. Cheap Loves machinery. Machinery. Yes. machinery that is designed to break down. And that is so oh. key. Such a, I, which I, that's a thing that did not click until we started doing this for me. Yeah. That's like his 40 in motif. Yeah. 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 So he makes the lift and then he makes a little bit of a longer student film. Oh, and by the way, the lift also has um, a panning shot of clocks on a wall. Yeah. And if you've seen one of his movies, it's probably a movie called Back to the Future which has uh-huh. an opening much like that, and also Pinocchio. But we'll get to those later. 
So already so hard. We're both. We I know. I go, I am go. dying to talk about Pinocchio. <laughs> so, Field of Honor. Yeah. His follow up is. <laughs> well, how would you? What would you describe the plot of that being? Uh, very very loose on paper. Just a bit more than a log line would be a, a dude gets out of the military. Um, presumably Vietnam, and is in a mental institution. We meet him the day he's getting out of that mental institution. He goes into the world and is just trying to get home. And in a, a little bit of, <laughs> before it, but things that made me think of after hours, stylings of just the world fucking you. Yeah. Over and over and triggering you in every possible way. He's just trying to get home. I won't spoil all the things that happen. Um, but yeah, so it's basically, I won't even go further, I guess, cause it's, it's so much fun, I think to see where it lands, but it's his, I think first and only like fully palindrome of a movie. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> like it's, it's really just, yeah. And, but it's, it's a great time and it's, um, amazing that, you know, this is a student film, whether or not it's not it cause it, he's smart because it clearly is not about the performances or the script here. It's about he was smart. I think he, I think him and Bob Gale probably knew they needed to make something to be able to run into Spielberg's office with. And it has yeah. all the makings of everything that he is going to do for the yeah. next set pieces. Like yeah. the amount, the, the, the like way, way, way too big for whatever project it is, set pieces that he pulls off is <laughs> already there in the student film. Which is what kind of gets him going is his ability is definitely his technical prowess that really helps and he well, i gotta mention to the steel the music oh yeah the, <laughs> uh, the great escape yeah he takes uh elmer bernstein's great escape score and apparently spielberg also loved that like right. the fact, he immediately heard it and was like wow yes <laughs> great great idea wow, you've chosen my favorite score <laughs> yeah <laughs> like yeah, I mean, because it, it is quite a striking student film. So if you, look, maybe you're a student out there in film school, here's the pro tip. Don't tell your friends. Watch Field of Honor. Yep. And then if you need more good shit, watch a, watch a Mike Lee short. You know, yeah. get, ahead of, get ahead of people. Don't be mm -hmm. one of these people trying to be like, I'm going to do a, a movie like uh, the Scorsese short films. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. Yeah. Trust us. So we'll get to Mike Lee eventually, <laughs> but we're sticking with Robert Zemeckis right now. So now we've talked about his student films. So, so they, yes, they take that idea. They take their film, they march into Spielberg's office. Spielberg says, I'm going to hire you. I'm going to let you do something. So they set about making some scripts. Uh, that's their first thing is they're going to write some scripts. They have, they wrote apparently a script called Growing Up. For Steven yeah. Spielberg, I cannot find any info on this. Me neither. It's probably what the Fablemans. I was gonna say, what if? What if we're full circle and we see maybe? I'm looking just for like a in the closing credits special thanks to Bob and Bob. You know, like maybe that's what it became. It may be, and as we'll get through the series, they have quite a symbiotic partnership that yep. informs each other's work in in, in different ways. But they 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 do the script for growing up. They do a script that um, 
well, hold on, we'll save that. They do Bordello of Blood. They they do the very first script that turned into um, Walter Hill's Trespass in the 90s, which if no one's seen Trespass, get your ass out there or at where, I don't know, go, find, go, go on the internet, get your ass on the internet. <laughs> Watch Trespass. <laughs> Because that yeah, we'll get we'll get into that one more that movie and the the very unlikely and slightly unholy in the right way combination of Walter Hill and Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis is fucking crazy. No, I think it just watching it this time, thinking about um, all the Zemeckis movies and all the stuff with Bob Gale, Trespass. Really, like I've always really really loved Trespass, but I don't think I ever actually saw it for what it was until now. You know, like I took it far too serious until now, I think. And not that it's not because that shit still hits. There's some real emotionality. There's some real, some real dramatic beats that are truly excellent. But as we'll get into a lot with, with the Bobs at its heart, it's a, a fucking chaos black comedy. And that yeah. is, that is what that movie is. And the, the, and Walter Hill clearly understood that. And yeah. you got Ice Cube actors. and Ice T. Yeah, everything is like a bit of a fucking sneering joke. <laughs> yeah. It's so good. It's so fucking funny. Which is the key to them, but also they're incredible. They are incredibly tight suspense makers. Like oh. when they want to do it, even in their Beatles movie, they're able oh. to find <laughs> ways to craft suspense. So yeah, there's Bordello of Blood and Trespass, which they. They're right, which became movies in the 90s. There's the script they never made with Spielberg. There's one real tantalizing script that we will... If you oh, I would, do, I would do almost anything anyone can come up with to get this script. You can piss in Will's mouth. Well, that's If that's it, are you kidding? Come on, that's I forgot, I forgot who I'm dealing with. You can dress <laughs> Will up like the dog in The Shining. Sure. And you can... Hold on, and you can defecate on him. You can, uh, you can do anything but kill Will. No, that's even that's that's up for debate. If John still gets the script and it gets out into the world, okay, that's, that's up for debate. You just can't kill anyone that I love. Okay, that's the the only line is no one I love can be killed. But anything else you can fathom, I'll probably say yes to to get us this script. You can do it to him. <laughs> you can do it to him and i'll watch and laugh i have yeah, to this script. is fucking sick we I should tell you what it is i guess uh <laughs> it was a script that they wrote for brian de palma which what a match made in heaven de palma zemeckis and gale combined uh, dear fucking god anyway the thing was called carpool and it was, was also that title i'm salivating i know and it was apparently described as vert or uh, rear window in a car <laughs> give it to me please. sadistic that's a sadistic idea and i love it give me this script i don't i fine i'll all right no i'm not gonna do any of the things we'll we'll do but i'll be really nice to you and I will. Yeah, you don't have to. I got it. I will take this. I'm. I'm not kidding. I'll take. I'll take not an L. I'll take a death. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if we can just get this, so that should let you know the importance that there is somewhere <laughs> out there a what could have been a De Palma Zemeckis collab, but we don't know we what did, it is. We did check 
Cinema Gate and Cart Gargar, right? Oh, we, I looked. Picture. I looked everywhere. Okay, I think I did too. But I'm just making sure because I was just imagining. I was like, it's gonna be real funny if someone DMs us and is like, "You fucking idiots! Here's the PDF." Yeah, it's been on <laughs> kick ass all whole time. <laughs> so that's what we want. Please get it for us, and if not, dream about what that could have been along yeah. with us. So they uh, they they're writing these scripts. They're trying to make themselves into Hollywood screenwriters. They eventually get one made for the the show Kolchak with uh, Darren McGavin as the, the ne- no one ever believes this guy. This guy's seen it all. He's seen werewolves, vampires, and his <laughs> stupid manager at the fucking, or editor at the paper, just for some reason in each episode, is like, you're crazy, Kolchak. It's like, he runs into like a mummy or something like how do you not believe the guy at this point it's amazing they really i gotta i I gotta give it to him for committing to such a dumb base idea yeah that never grows well well, i have not um i've not watched it in order so maybe i am wrong and maybe there is Surely not, right? That's true. Yeah, okay. I was like, like, other sure than the made-for-TV movie that um, well, that's John Llewellyn Moxie did, uh, yes. oh, uh, The another, Ninth Doctor. One of, truly one of the greatest TV films, especially TV horror films ever made. Yeah. But they made that into a series, which Kojak, which eventually influenced uh, and birthed the show The X-Files. So I think Darren McGavin shows up as Kolchak in one of the episodes. I does indeed. Okay. All right. This is what I, I like the X Files. I'm sure you're shocked. I'm, I'm a pretty big fan. <laughs> so <laughs> one or one or two here and there. <laughs> sure. All right. So we'll get into another episode eventually about Will's X File love. But they write an episode for Kolchak. It is uh, I think the second the story. Just the story. Oh, just the story, right. Because the scripts are, they all follow the same beat. Yeah, it was probably too interesting. And they were like, we really, we got to, we got to dumb this down a little bit, but we like what you did. Thank you so much. (laughs) This guy. Yeah, it's about Kolchak being terrorized by a headless biker. Yep. And importantly, on a very, on a talked about by model name, cheap old motorcycle. Because they they fucking love machinery. Yeah, and that would obviously be lost on a Kolchak viewer back then. <laughs> um, but this is a fun game to play once you've been through this with us. You can see these things and you can be like, oh, shit. Wow. And they're doing the headless thing, which would pop back up in a TV movie, which I know we both love. Yep. Well, it's an episode, but it feels like a movie because it's like 40 minutes. Well, they, they're, they're just so good. They feel like movies. That's the reality. It does, really doesn't matter how long. They're just fucking incredible. How long until we get... Is that the next one? Yeah, that's next week. Oh, boy, I can't wait to talk about those. Let's not even yeah. go into it. Yeah, we it. can't now. You got to keep it going. This is a new era of discipline for us, and it's hard if you can't really talk. Hard. It's yeah. really hard. We haven't derailed yet, though, so we can do it. Oh, great. So they're, uh, <laughs> they do the episode of Gold Jack. <laughs> And they're like, well, what are we going to do next? So they've caught the attention of Steven Spielberg. So Steven Spielberg's like, um, you know, I want to work on the script. They had an idea floating around for uh, something called the day or the night the Japs invaded. Yes. Thankfully, that title was changed. I think it was meant in a joking way. Yeah, Yeah. it it, it was. was. 
It wasn't meant in like that's how they feel about the Japanese. No. It's very much play. Well, if you know 1941, this is not a movie. <laughs> this movie hates Americans. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot. But they were. That's a thing too. We'll get into as we go through the career. I think. Well, it's more in the early stuff, but their style of comedy. I think maybe the Bobs started a little too much, where they thought people would immediately be like. That's clearly a joke. This is a movie about how fucked up America is. That's not about a slur. But, yeah. Because a little, little ahead of it, guys. Yes. So they're starting this script, which is about, takes a couple days after Pearl Harbor when there was a real life, someone thought that Japanese uh, warships were going to attack the Los Angeles coastline. Anyway, that they're working on the script now. They're really penciling away. So it's a big script. So it took them a little while. So in the meantime, and they're adding multiple things too, because there's also the the real thing that happened where the military put a fucking like that insane like Gatling gun. At oh, that's real. House, yeah. In Ned Beatty's yard, yeah. Okay, we'll get to, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Sorry. No, no, I understand. I I know. <laughs> so before they can get to this project, this massive uh, bomb of a project, one might say, they get a chance to direct a script of theirs, uh, which was i think originally titled beatlemania and then it was beatles forever and then the legal department said just don't put beatles in the title (laughs) so they ended up calling or in the movie (laughs) or in the movie Uh, we're gonna call it i want to hold your hand now if you're a criterion head a janice head (laughs) uh you might have seen this roll out on one of their slates. I think it was a couple of years ago, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, a couple of years back. Um, and you probably just thought, wait, this is not Bergman. This isn't Wong Kar Wai. What is this stupid looking movie? Well, you'd be wrong. Well, you'd be right. It isn't either of those filmmakers, but it is uh, a very, <laughs> very interesting movie. So, holy shit. The, well, just try, I'm going to try to do the plot very quickly. So it is what is going to become customary of the Bobs are these very tightly woven but complicated scripts. And this movie concerns a group of kids uh, in the early 60s who are trying to go see the Beatles perform on the Ed Sullivan show. And if you pay attention you realize not really do any of them just want to go see the show. They all kind of have their own agenda for being there. One wants to become a famous photographer out of it. One is clearly trying to avoid an impending marriage. One is there to uh, protest the Beatles and uh, make <laughs> and sing the praises of Joan Baez, <laughs> oh, which is very funny. And that's actually Paul Newman's daughter. Yeah. Yeah. There's another person who just wants to get close to Paul. There's one guy who tags along because he's just trying to get laid. And another guy that tags along because he doesn't know that he's being used. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so they all go on this uh, this journey from New Jersey, I think, to go... Jersey to the city. To the city. And that's the plot. So essentially it involves them all trying to get into the, the uh, Ambassador Hotel where the Beatles were staying... And they go through all these different ways to get up there. 
Um, Will's favorite comedian, Eddie Deason, appears. Uh, I love him in these. I cannot stand him outside of the Zemeckis verse. Yeah, he only know. belongs in the oh, oh, my fucking God, do I love him in the hands of the Bobs. <laughs> Boy, I mean, he is a... I mean, this movie is very loud and broad. It is Oh, like, my God, it's so loud. It's crazy abrasive if you're not... If you're used to the modern style, when I say modern, I'm talking like after the 80s until right now. If you're used to that style of comedy, this is going to be a bit of a a bit of a cold water in the face moment, but it's worth it. But if you're someone who is kind of more adept to these newer, weirder avenues of comedy that have been developing over 10 years, I would argue that these Zemeckis films start to catch up and make more sense. Kind of like we were talking about like jerry lewis movies which clearly they are gigantic fans of well huge fans of jerry but and what i'll be quick i promise but because we'll do it someday we were in conversation on music box the other night during highs and lows and we talked about jerry lewis's cracking up which we won't dig into but basically we were talking about jerry desperately trying to update the kind of comedy that he loved for what he deemed to be this new crass thing that was happening where stuff had to be like fucking gross and r-rated you know and him desperately trying to do that and we love cracking up deeply and dearly as everyone should but this movie because i watched this again right after that conversation and i was like this is what jerry thought he could pull off because this movie is exactly that where you're still you still have that incredible slapstick you have like the the like Keystone Cops energy still, even all the way back to the silence. You have like everything. You have everything that's but happening what, in comedy. Absolutely. But what's different is that Jerry Lewis had jokes. These movies don't have jokes. No. Everything is it's funny because it's playing off of how serious <laughs> these characters are. And they all take it so serious. It is life or death. Yeah. yeah. And that's a classic, like great underused thing for real comedies. Is yeah. that it's again after hours after hours is so fucking funny because griffin dunn is so goddamn dramatic about everything happening exactly. and that's what we're doing and i want to hold your hand and i gotta like i gotta shout out wendy joe sperber also <laughs> she's, absolutely she's so fun and she's also the reason eddie gets all that screen time because the two of them together is <laughs> Oh yeah, I mean Wendy Jo Sperber. Yeah, we should talk about her. I mean, she she's is amazing, and she's in, she comes up a lot throughout this. So yeah, she's we're gonna see her uh, pop up in used cars <laughs> so in that great cameo towards the end. Wendy Jo Sperber is plays the uh, the character who's obsessed with Paul, and she she left us early in this life. I believe when she I think like forty age forty seven. I think so, something like that. It's it's a shame. Um, cancer is just a horrible thing so much so that she set up an organization which i believe nancy allen now runs yep and nancy allen is also in this movie oh and we have to discuss the i mean the whole performance but there is a sequence um if you haven't watched it skip for a second but we have to talk about it there is a sequence where it's basically nancy allen long form masturbating she breaks um, into the beatles hotel room yes <laughs> she breaks into the hotel room and at first does what you might expect a, a you know like an 18 year old 
teenage girl who's in her favorite band's hotel room to do, right? You jump in the bed for a second, roll around a little, and then you might even do, you know, have that moment where you like, you know, you smell the pillow. You're like, wow, that's crazy. This is where the Beatles slept. Sure. But it quickly, I will say ascends instead of descends because it's amazing. It quickly changes to her uh, grabbing <laughs> the bass guitar that's near to her and rubs it against her face, starts to lick it. And we go through this crazy sequence where she's doing that with stuff throughout their whole hotel. <laughs> and she touches their Coke bottles, like but everything is so eroticized and they stretch the scene out for a ridiculously long time. But Nancy yeah. Allen gives this like powerhouse Super hot, super amazing performance. I mean, that's truly one of the highlights of that film. And we're going to try to avoid specific plot specifics for yeah, that. Yeah, it's yeah. more important. Just to had to do that one. He had to highlight that because that is a, a, a phenomenon. And it's unreal. And it highlights the true, like, I will say, wholesome perversion of the Bobs that yeah. exists in all their comedies is they really love stuff that is perverse, but outside of a few exceptions that we'll get into later, most of the time it still comes across in a way where you know it's not going to like terrify a mainstream audience and lose everybody, but you mm-hmm. is not, you do know that it's probably not something they've ever seen or thought about before, and that's fucking awesome. Absolutely. I mean, he's already walking that tightrope here. He, he kind of walks <laughs> a little off the tightrope with youth cars. Um, yeah. <laughs> he has to get back on it because this guy yeah. knows how to play the game in Hollywood. Yeah, he had to get it out. Yes. Uh, Basically, the scene we won't spoil in this one that involves fetish. Uh, we can't spoil that. It no. involves fetish in I Want to Hold Your Hand. I feel like the Bobs uh, loved doing that scene so much that they were like, let's do every idea we have like that for our next movie. I mean, kind of. Like, they're you're seeing a movie that is already so technically proficient. Oh my God. It's cr- it, There is not a first feature. It's bullshit that that's a first feature. Yeah. And now they, they got this movie made because Spielberg said that he would take over the reins of directing if it went off the rails, like, yeah. because Zemeckis was a first time filmmaker. So Spielberg hung around the set and eventually just stopped coming around set. Cause it was like, all right, well, guys got it like he he knows what Zemeckis starts to realize is he might be more of a stylist and a technically proficient visualist than he had given himself credit for so while this movie is so jaw-droppingly well made um and it has things that I you know I'm pretty sure Tom Hanks kind of ripped off for that thing you do it's it's funny because they're buddies but surely they've had that conversation. I was thinking about this at one point and there's a, who was it? Is it Ebert that said it? I'm pretty sure it was an Ebert's review um, where, oh, he, where he, he said, he well, I want actively yeah. when, when that thing you do comes out, <laughs> he says that Zemeckis did this similar idea way better and I want to hold your hand. And it is interesting because yeah, obviously Zemeckis and Hanks are buds. Yeah, they, they very close buddies. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm, just, I'm curious. Yeah, they worked out the movies together. Uh, <laughs> yeah. They're escaping me right now, but um, <laughs> they worked That'd together. At least one. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think one. They definitely worked on one. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, they probably did. Yep. So, 
I mean, maybe Zemeckis helped him out. Maybe it was a similar moment, right? Because Tom's like, I'm going to step in the directing chair. I'm feeling nervous. Maybe, maybe he straight up was like, Bob, can you help me out? And he's like, yo, the story you're doing, pretty similar to the story I did. <laughs> yeah, let me give you some pointers here. So yeah. I, I need to find our, uh, our next one here. I think it's in here. I want to quote Dave Kerr. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. I took a screenshot, but it's better from the book. <laughs> yes, yes. We buy physical media over here. That's right. So that brings us from I Want to Hold Your Hand, which I, I didn't make that much money. It was not a... But it, but it didn't like, it didn't tank anything. Didn't tank. It got, yeah. it it did got okay. pretty good reviews critically. Yeah. Zemeckis has a lot going on out the gate. This is not just like a slapdash thrown together, you know, see what sticks to the wall kind of thing. It's a very tight script. It's a very tightly made movie and it has a lot on its mind. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, if you think about the the scenes with the kid getting his hair cut, it's just like oh. he, I mean, it's, it's rife with so much like disturbing commentary about the time that yes. he get very good at doing like yes. very good like in a way that almost, most people don't notice yeah in a way no one sees it <laughs> but some people have. we'll, get, we'll uh-huh. get to the big fish soon so before we get to what i got the quote for there's something we have to talk about in the middle how can i forget we almost did they make the script for 1941 now studio heads look took a look at the script and said so you want to do a movie with a, a ferris wheel that <laughs> rolls across the entirety of like the coastal los angeles destroys things this is a crazy script the script is like a mad magazine strip come to life it is and with milius also writes this one with him John right. Milius. yes and this is the one about the the uh perceived japanese invasion on <laughs> los angeles which they turn into <laughs> I mean, they take the energy that came off of I Want to Hold Your Hand, this mania, this like societal insanity, and they take it to the next level, along with a couple of their actors. Uh, Wendy Jo Sperber shows up. We got the we got the the guy who sings I Want to Hold Your Glands. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, I can't remember his name. I, I can't remember his name either. Uh, he shows up. We have... Um, we have Eddie with... A mannequin. God bless. God bless. <laughs> Eddie Deason's back, baby. He's got yeah, a little in this with doll. Yeah. <laughs> so you get double the Eddie Deason, <laughs> which rocks. It's uh, so good. <laughs> and you, you, if you, if you wanted more of that, you're gonna have to wait a while before Zemeckis and Deason come back together. But yeah. they do when it comes to the Polar Express. They find their way back together. They do. And this cast also just, we can't list everybody just because list. it's impossible. But I mean, even to, I just always have to, my boy Slim Pickens. He is one of the funniest subplots yeah. in the movie. And also I think it's good for people to come in because I know a lot of people who normally don't like things that go as far as 1941 does with its potentially touchy jokes. Yeah, I know all of you love Slim Pickens and Blazing Saddles, as you should. Try to look at 1941 through a Blazing Saddles lens and then everything will be all right in the realm. Let's go, let's in the realm. Okay, and it's yeah. because they let Belushi improv. That's why. It's only right. because of that one moment. Because he is a coked out man <laughs> on that set. So much that 
there's a scene of him trying to jump in his plane and he falls on his head and it looked like it's a joke. No, he was that fucked up and, it's real. and was hospitalized for a few days after. So, yeah, so here's how we're going to just try to describe 1941. Now, this movie, Kubrick saw the movie and loved it, except yeah. he said the only problem he felt with it was the way it was marketed. He felt that Spielberg should have marketed it as a serious film and not a comedy. Mm-hmm. The Gale, Bob Gale Zemeckis and Bob Zemeckis wrote this screenplay. Spielberg directed it. It is very tough to see where it, I mean, this is so f- just like a perfect combination of the three of them. This is almost more a Zemeckis movie than a Spielberg, but then you're like, well, but then there's the Spielbergness. Like, it's really hard to tell. So it is a complete collaboration of Zemeckis, Spielberg. Like, but it was, they did write it serious first, though, right? They did write it serious. And I think it was like, serious. And then when Steven came in, I think is when it, when they all then i think he helped see yeah. that like you were on the right path maybe don't listen to milius yeah. maybe like, don't, uh, don't make torah 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 yeah exactly <laughs> so he get they they write this script um the the script basically it involves the the perceived invasion the let's let's try to go through this kaleidoscopic cast there is a cruiser or a, a Japanese warship that has Toshiro Mifune on it from all the classic Akira Kurosawa films. One of the greatest actors of all time. One of the greatest. Just a, a legend. And, and also the Nazi, who's another one of the greatest. Another legend, someone I'm taller than, uh Christopher <laughs> Lee. Uh noted short man, Christopher Lee. Yeah. They are aboard a uh and yeah, the Japanese warship, and they're they're trying to find Hollywood to bomb Hollywood. There's another it's plot. Their honor, like they their can't honor. go home. They yeah. can't go home embarrassed because they haven't hurt any Americans or American property yet during the during the Pearl Harbor attack. So they had to try to attack California to, to Wait, not go home sad. Now, pause. <laughs> this movie is made right after Steven Spielberg becomes the biggest living filmmaker on the face of the. <laughs> fucking earth he did jaws and close encounters and he's like what do you want to do next sir you can have your pick of anything (laughs) and he chose 1941 and so um i just have to point that out because it does open with a very funny spoof of jaws oh my god the same actress is a duel spoof too the same actress again at the same yeah, and it's crass that jo- opening with that jaws spoof in your own movie is so crass and weird and yeah if you if you get a chuckle there strap in for one of the best viewing experiences you'll ever have these chuckles are going to get caught in your throat there might be <laughs> some that you will because i do think it's aged better now yeah. uh because we should say this movie was a huge bomb this was like actually wait i read today Bob Gale said it was not actually a huge bomb. He said that it didn't make compared to what Steven was doing at the time. It was it wasn't a huge success, but they didn't lose any money. They didn't yeah, they didn't lose money, yeah. but critically so still cuz I'd always thought that it was critically and financially like everything was fucked <laughs> for Universal. Yeah. It was a critical <laughs> dud. 
Oh, that's a nice word. (laughs) Yes. They did. No one understood this movie. And I'm sure people were very upset because it had a a long, people used to really care about production histories and if they were going over budget and if things were crazy, I don't know why, but immediately people were just mad that he didn't give you Jaws 2 or Close Encounters 2 or whatever people thought they were going to get from don't worry, he came back soon. Yeah, he, yeah. Spoiler, he comes back. What you fucking wanted. Yeah, he makes other movies. So, <laughs> but at this time, he's putting his faith in Zemeckis and Bob Gale, and yeah. So there is the uh, the warship with Toshiro Mifune and Christopher Lee on board. You have uh, the guy from I Want to Hold Your Hand, the like the guy uh, the, the the greaser. Yeah. Is a a kid trying to get into a zoot suit dance off. But that turns into a, a, a UFO military only dance off. So then he has to get a military uniform. And he has to get a military Ooh, uniform. Girl. Who's yeah. that? Well, I, we don't have to get into it, but the dark comedy of how men act in the world of Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale is fucking nuts. Oh, yeah. Oh, we'll get to it in a sec here. I mean, that for sure. I just don't want to derail because that can. <laughs> Yes. So there's there's that character and his buddy. Uh, they're kind of the ones that start the plot off by they're trying to get a zoot suit at a convenience store or department store. So they uh, they they sound an air siren, which, which they bring with them that they bring with them in the changing room to make it seem like they play off the fears that Pearl Harbor just happened. And now the Japanese are about to bomb Los Angeles. So this creates panic. And that's where the movie really starts, is the panic ensues. Um, The military starts to take over Los Angeles. um, And society is breaking down. So you have them. You have a family starring uh, the the. Uh, the wife from uh, Jaws, whose name I'm forgetting, Lorraine. Uh, Bat Babbitt. Um, Lorraine Brock, Brocco. No, Is that it. Bra- Brock. Uh, hold on, I gotta get her name right. <laughs> She's just such a. She's so good. Not Lorraine Brocco. That's the fucking therapist from the. the oh, I know. No, none of them are right. I had. Okay, Babbitt whatever. Brock. The the lady from. Jaws, Roy Scheider's wife. Lorraine Gary. Lorraine fucking Gary. Because it's That's Lorraine Gary and Ned Beatty. And they're a couple right. and it's fucking sick. <laughs> and, and it's great. Yeah. It's, yeah. They're, uh, they have a very funny household and they live on a bay. And the military comes to try to put a an anti-aircraft missile gun in their yard, which really happened. Led by Dan Aykroyd and John Candy. And John Candy and an uncredited very early Mickey Rourke. Yep. And also, you can only see the side of his face, but James Kahn is also briefly, right. and it's crazy because I never knew that. And yeah. when I was watching, because you literally don't even see the front of his face, I was like, that's got to be James Kahn's jaw because it's so distinct. Uh-huh. Sure he just popped by the set and decided to, he was quite a star at this point. And just well, decided- you know who that was supposed to be? Who? That cameo? It was supposed to be fucking John Wayne. Right, but Wayne didn't want it to, to be do it. John Wayne, and Spielberg gave him the script, and John Wayne was like, "You don't make jokes about World War II, son." Yeah, he felt it was unpatriotic. Yeah, unpatriotic, and told him he needed to not make the movie because you should not joke about World War II. 
And so Spielberg obviously was just like, all right, I know this this young cat named James Conn. Yeah, we'll just put him in instead of making his first role, right? Isn't that the first thing he's ever in? Is Who, James Conn? No, Mickey Rourke. Yeah, Mickey Rourke. That is his very first role. <laughs> Wild. He's just like right there. Amazing. Uh pre nip tuck. <laughs> just a little bit. Just a little yeah. bit. Well, when we, he was we there's so many more people. Okay, let's let's who let's see. So we, there's Eddie Beeson. He and yeah. his ventriloquist dummy are they are on duty on on watch out on a Ferris wheel. Uh, Wendy Jo Sperber is uh, the friend of the guy trying to get into the the dance. His girlfriend, and we she. Got, um, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, and she's just a complete horn dog for this one guy who's basically a dry run for Biff in back yeah. to the future yep who's a another famous actor that I, his name's escaping me right now that guy yeah you you oh, he's, you've yeah. all seen him in tons of shit but yep. we got a lot to get through here and most importantly john belushi is manning an airplane that's i don't know if gone rogue is the right thing he is uh <laughs> he is in, uh, well it's gone rogue because of him he's yeah making, right he's got he's his mind has gone rogue he is got he's a they don't say it, but he's fucking clearly he's just a wall from whatever unit he's a part of flying like presume I assume if the script fleshes this out, he was at Pearl Harbor and yeah. just flew off. Maybe they do say it and I missed it, but and just like flew off and is like flying around for some reason and decides to go to California just to check in, make sure it's all right. Yeah, um, some Chris Kyle shit. The war is yes, going it. on in his head. Yes, it is. We got and to mention Nancy Allen again. Nancy Allen and Tim Matheson. The best. <laughs> Tim Matheson, not far from his performance in Animal House, is a horny uh, general's like commanding officer assistant or something. And he's just he, like a personal assistant that gets military pay. It's crazy. And military pussy. Yeah. <laughs> this guy is getting mad pale. <laughs> And all he wants to do, like most of us, is sleep with Nancy Allen. But and the only way you can sleep with Nancy Allen is if she is in a plane in the sky. And I don't mean a commercial consumer plane. It's not joining the Mile High Club in the way that we've all hoped to or some of us maybe have. It is a very special way where the person she wants to sleep with needs to be flying that plane. In a fighter jet. <laughs> In a fighter jet with bombs on board, preferably. She loves that. <laughs> a lot of people say that this thing, this 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 uh, subplot is crass. I mean, duh. Yeah, it but is. But it's, it's so much point. fun because there's it's push and pull back and forth the whole time. Right. The only way that plot reads truly as, if you want to say, problematic, is if you stop watching the movie after like 20 minutes. And if you don't think women can be horny. Well, she takes over because he's he's oh, very, she's in control I'll, of that. I'll scenario. stop quickly, but he very quickly becomes like a he's just a fucking wet noodle, like being drug around at her whim, because she realizes she really needs to get back on a plane and get off. So yeah, mm-hmm. but, all right, well, yeah. <laughs> so I think those are all the subplots. There's more. Like well, said, you left out you left out one of my favorite characters though that guy's boss which i forget who plays him but that oh. guy's boss who all he wants to do while actual 
like while basically you know we're flirting with martial law about <laughs> to be happening um his boss god was that fucking actor's name Keep, I'll, his, I'll think of it his boss all he wants to do is watch the latest disney movie that's come out which, which is dumbo, dumbo. <laughs> he, not only does he want to watch it but he's also been watching it a bunch because he knows the words yeah. when, they're, when they're singing and it's fucking amazing um one of the, the funniest scenes one of the funniest scenes is when it's they're so like funny. sir there's st- shit going on outside and he's just like i'm trying to watch dumbo yeah. we can't we're gonna list the whole cast which we should stack duh uh, yes fucking unsolved mysteries and we got i got a one more my dude joe flaherty uh, most famous for and because he's a fan of this movie um, most famous for being the dads on Freaks and Geeks in these days. Yes. But Joe yes. Flaherty was given lots of love in Zemeckis Land multiple times. Multiple but times. his his role in this one, <laughs> he's a he's a nightclub host named Raul Lipschitz, love <laughs> and he slips in and out of a I don't know what accent, but it's incredible. You see a lot of Zemeckis's Rube Goldberg obsessions. Yes. Which oh, that seems amazing. Which worked like Hello Dolly in that moment. It's crazy. Absolutely. I mean, and the Rube Goldberg mechanism figures into a lot of Zemeckis, quite literally sometimes, and then kind of figuratively with the way he constructs his scripts. I mean, this movie is kind of like a Rube Goldberg machine just yeah. set off. Because you're you're wondering at some point, I mean, if you're halfway sane, you should be wondering, how is this tying in? And how is this all going to tie in? <laughs> And it does. It. Um, I, I also really want to highlight uh, Frank McRae as one of the uh, who we'll see coming up in the next movie. Um, and a wonderful, wonderful cameo from our boy. Always, always welcome. Mr. Warren Oates. Oh, yeah. As He's, the completely oh, gone off his rocker uh, <laughs> military captain. Let me hear your guns. So, <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> This is the scope of this movie that we're dealing with. There's more. We didn't get There's more. It's like I said, it's like if you open one of those full page spreads of a mad magazine and it is just, there is something happening in every frame. It doesn't slow down. You have to watch this movie a couple of times to really kind of like catch everything. Now, does this movie work completely? I don't know. I love it because to me, this is one of the few movies that you could say doesn't work but it does and it makes it so fascinating because you're watching these filmmakers play with unlimited studio money like like the stunt again the the scope of the set pieces is fucking unreal like jaw-dropping it's unreal how much they got to do whatever they wanted and i will say also i think it works better And I'm not doing my normal thing because I'm a I'm one of those annoying people sometimes who just prefers longer cuts of things because I like to spend time in the world. Mm-hmm. But in this case, definitely watch the the director's cut if you can. And it is it's, so it's 27 agree. minutes longer. It makes it a two and a half hour movie. But and there's tons of differences, extra scenes. But really, the key thing, and I found a great little interview with Bob Gale when um, they were putting out the the re-release of this. And uh, they brought up the director's cut and he was like, yeah, there's a lot of stuff we were excited about. He's like, but really the main thing is what they cut from the theatricals. A lot of the biggest things had the John Williams score 
And we were so, all of us, and again, that's why we're spending so much time on this because it's not just a Steven Spielberg movie. All three of them made this clearly. This is um, a joint effort for sure. Yeah, this is a three-headed director situation, yeah. or at least three-headed creator situation. Yeah. It's a hybrid um, movie, yeah. Yeah, and they, all of them, and it's so different. If you watch them back to back, some of the crazy set pieces in the comedy does not work as well with the score the studio replaced it with. So if you can watch that director's cut, even if just for that, but also the extra scenes back are all great. So yeah, it, it's it's one that like I don't think anyone's going to be faulted for saying they didn't find it funny, but no, I, I really for everybody, but I think it's fucking hysterical. I think it's very funny. There are some <laughs> scenes in that I'm still thinking about, and I one I'm not going to spoil, um, but I. I just absolutely adore 1941. There, it's a complete what's it movie. You'll never see anything like it ever again in the history of our life on this miserable earth. Nope. So you should 100% seek out 1941 and yeah. just enjoy it. Because we need to see this with an audience. Yeah, that's the other thing, folks. We can't really go into it right now, but maybe this retro might take on another life one day. Hmm. Maybe it'll maybe. hop. Maybe it'll hop from the podcast to the big screen. What from a world! Out of the box. Be. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> so, 1941. That's a perfect example of that. So now, 1941 has come and gone. <laughs> we can clearly do for seven hours. We can. Yeah, there could be a whole podcast of voting <laughs> to 1941. So, but we got to move on. So <laughs> now that they've got. I guess you could say cloud, even though they are known for writing scripts everybody loves, but no one wants to make. Yep. Is kind of their reputation. They've made these scripts that are being talked about in Hollywood is like, wow, can you believe this? But they're not, they don't make money. Yeah. And then their buddy who could do no wrong and made more money, like you said, than anyone in the world right now just made one of their movies and it did not work. <laughs> but thankfully he had a lot of cloud behind him. Yeah. so they keep him around and he helps get their next movie made which is uh 1980s used cars now this one if you're as a mecca said you probably know this is kind of the the key like there's a this is the blackest comedy jewel maybe in his filmography it's kind of a cult film Yep. Kurt Russell plays a used car dealer. Pulled off two in the brothers, trip. two brothers yeah. had a falling out. They open up car dealerships across from each other. One doesn't, you know, is not in it for the money. One wants to own the town. Is in bed with all the mayor and all the dirty people in town. That's it. Like yeah. that's the plot. Yes, there is a death scene that Quentin Tarantino one hundred percent ripped off in Death Proof, or paid homage to. I mean, and probably since he, since the boy's in it. I mean, it's got to be you know horrifying scene kind of like a window into like oh maybe this is what they would have been like if they had made exploitation yes. horror movies well and because the we we touched on it a tiny bit earlier but and the the fucking sexual politics of this are unreal yeah. and again much more in leaning towards horror and exploitation stuff um but maybe even actually a little further than usual i would say well and and the level of broad comedy, I mean, oh. the, this movie is very b darkly funny, 
Oh, it's hilarious. Um, there, there are some reasons it didn't. Yeah, there's some reasons it didn't land the way it was probably supposed to. Up until this point in Hollywood, there had been very little studio-backed comedies. Um, and right a couple of weeks before this movie came out, a movie called Airplane came out. And starring Robert Stack. Let's just say that Airplane kind of cleaned up the box office. So that when a couple weeks later, a very smart less gag filled comedy called used cars comes out it it just didn't have the impact that it would have but i do think that if this movie had come out before airplane we might be talking very differently about that movie and zemeckis i mean it's also harsher though too because i do think airplane airplane i think marked what was to come as far as starting again to pretend (laughs) that things that things could be sunshiny you know reagan shit like we were coming back into that era where like out of the out of the 70s everyone's fucking sad about war and stuff i mean it mirrors with the other movies coming out right like well it predicts it predicts reagan because in this he's taking pot shots at jimmy carter yes oh yeah yeah Yeah, yeah, it's amazing it's amazing but i mean i mean the tone of what people were looking for have started to swing and airplane not that it doesn't have great stuff i do not hate airplane by any stretch but airplane was going towards lighter and this is darker and this is about mean capitalists <laughs> yeah you know and this and i, I think that i think that everything had started to not quite swing yet but it was starting to go that direction and so i think that it had that against it too even if it had come out first i still wonder well yeah i mean ready this is when receptive well yeah the artist kind of died heaven's gate had broken united artists it was uh, well known that studios were trying to get away from these things the the great dream was kind of dying um no thanks to two people who were part of that dream spielberg and lucas but hey <laughs> they're not their fault they just made what they are born to make but uh it did change things forever and yeah, this movie fits kind of very awkwardly in there at that time because you're right, it is kind of predicting and also saying where America has been. Because the other great plot line in that movie is Kurt Russell just wants to be a corrupt politician. And he just <laughs> yeah. says, I want to be a, a, gra- a cop politician on the graph. Like, that's all I want. Yeah. Because um, he thinks that's good business. And it is. It is. And it was, especially then. It was, I mean, always, but that i mean that was a quick that was a way to make the fastest buck it made perfect sense that so many used car salesmen became politicians absolutely and we were talking about kind of his fascination with equipment and technology this movie is like it just takes place in the middle of the desert at these wow. at these car lots and they're just these sad depressing car lots of these great titan these, this great behemoth of industry the automobile and you just see it dead. You see rows and rows of these decrepit things that in the movie 1941 would have been the thing on display. Like, this is what you want. And now it's just this really broken down system that he has to juice the miles on. Yeah, that's where you start. The opening moment of this is him running back the, the odometer. With a fucking crane shot that's like... Oh, yeah. 
you started the movie with this and like insane Hitchcockian, like notorious, like where the, it's like on the level of seeing the key and fucking Ingrid Bergman's hand and notorious. It's like, true. it really is, fuck? but it's an odometer being turned back. Odometer, yeah. Before that silly fucking song starts. It's so good. That great song. Um, also animal house was going around. Uh, I think the, like right before this as well. So there was before, right. I think so because well, there, yeah. has 78 and this is 80, right? Yeah. So it was right before. So there is that other thing of comedy, but that yeah. wasn't like a studio back thing originally. So that animal house thing grows and, you know, but as we're saying, there's these kind of like super gag filled comedies like airplane. And then there's like very crass. You wonder where the creator's hearts are in shit like animal house. Cause I mean, Sorry, we're not going to get into it, but the the uh, the what the fuck meter definitely goes off millions of times in Animal House. And I got to say, Animal House has not aged well. I Not even just for its politics. I just think like... There's really only one thing that I still think is hilarious, and that is the horse dying. <laughs> horse dying is a great scene. That's, that's, a, that's a funny scene. <laughs> it's a movie that, listen, we're one, we love vile humor, but not that this movie like offends me but there's one scene that's a little oh yeah you know what we're talking about there well, so you said humor is the problem there's a lot of stuff in animal house that is not humor it's yeah. just get really drunk burp say something pass out and put all of that in the movie it didn't do what animal house did more damage to the society than i think good yeah and it was also i mean it was the death knowledge of national input we can get into that another time anyway no. Yeah, you know but I'm dying to talk movie, about National Lampoon's Last Resort. So, yeah. but this so, this movie only has, in my opinion, even though it has a lots of moments, a lot of moments that maybe will make you go, ooh, or yeah. I don't know. I think it only has one moment that falls into Animal House territory, but it it only one. wisely is aware of it, and I think our good buddy Dave Kerr said it wonderfully here so i'm going to read a couple of lines from his chicago reader article from september in 1980 he says used cars scores its greatest outrage by seizing that level of brute physical humor crude uninflected and turning it into an ideal the gags in used cars are as tattered crass and intentionally second rate as its subject matter. And they're funny because they are so depressingly familiar. Just an amazing way wow. of putting that. Uh, well, he said, at first you don't laugh at all, then you laugh with embarrassment. <laughs> and finally, after the barriers have been broken down by the film's pure brute force, you laugh at everything. The film tramples on your taste, but the effect is weirdly cathartic exhilarating he also says that's one of the very final line of this is very good he says used cars revels in its trashiness but it never lets us forget whose trashiness it is it's yours mine and ours the slag heap of american life zemeckis and gale have made an offensive appalling film but in some strange way they have also made a profoundly patriotic one so used cars, we still don't have a win for Mr. Zemeckis. Uh, this well, movie two, just like 1941, it's a it's, and how we talked about, they respect their audience 
to a really a really um, beautiful degree, and the audience doesn't necessarily like that. No, I would also say that something that we will return to in a couple of um, different movies when we talk about is the level at which Zemeckis is aware of his relationship with Spielberg. And I do think that that the great insane final uh, auto chase at the end of the movie, which we're not going to spoil because my God, that was made. That set piece. Yes. Is, is truly incredible. And I do think it's kind of him having a little fun by trying to um, one up Sugarland Express. And he did. And he did. And I think Spielberg knew that. I have a theory Spielberg got a little nervous with Max, even though they stayed close and they never really had that falling out. They were always close collaborators. I think Spielberg got a little nervous around Zemeckis. Uh Well, I think it was, I bet they kept it as honest as they could, though, all the way through. Because I also feel like if you're writing movies like this, both, both Zemeckis and Bob Gale, they have to be like classic shit kickers as far as friends there's no way they don't give their really close friends shit all the time <laughs> well i think for sure i mean if you- i think Spielberg is too despite how he might come off in a public setting i think he likes that and i think he likes people around him keeping him honest he's not a yes man type person i don't think i do think that zemeckis really identifies with roger rabbit when he says <laughs> humor is all we have <laughs> And when we get to that movie, that line becomes extremely important. Um, That's a dark-ass movie. So uh, I would argue this is his darkest movie, is Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh, I agree completely. Yeah, and we'll we'll get to that. So right now, before he can do that, he is still not making any box office, but he's making these movies that people in Hollywood are noticing and going, oh, shit. So he needs a hit. So maybe you realize that my scripts with Bob Gale aren't ready for the world yet. So I'm going to take a chance on a screenplay written by a non-screenwriter, a waitress at a diner who died only a couple weeks after the film's premiere. She wrote, I'm forgetting her name. I'm sorry. It's not because it's a woman. It's because... It, it is. is. It you is. It's be, no, because she was. No, it's because she was a waitress. Get <laughs> <laughs> a real job. <laughs> Good God! Get an office job, honey. John ardently does not tip. I never tip. He leaves notes that says "Do better." Yeah, here's a, here's a tip. <laughs> here's a tip. Less makeup. Oh. You're one of those. All right. All right. <laughs> you at least got to like leave a leave a uh, Walgreens gift card with that. Well, there's no money on it, but I leave it. <laughs> so this uh, the writer of this movie, Romancing the Stone. Her name is Diane Thomas. She did Romancing the Stone. Apparently, she also co-wrote uh, one of Steven Spielberg's not good movies, Always. Oof. Um, she was originally hired to write the uh, the uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which apparently she described what the before Indiana Jones became that was apparently going to be Indiana Jones in a haunted mansion type movie. Please, please. Oh God, my heart. Yeah, where's that? Also, you know, while you're 
since I'm gonna let my life be lost for that, for that, uh, uh, when you get us the diploma script, we also need this original script of Indiana Jones and the fucking Haunted Mansion. God damn it. Really? It's, yeah. Yeah. She was working on it at the time of her death. So it maybe never got completed. But uh, yes, set in a haunted mansion. Spielberg thought it was too close to poltergeist. Which you know what? He didn't he didn't direct that. That's fucking goddamn right. He didn't direct that. Jesus he did do a little bit, but that's a Toby Hooper movie. That's he not made it. decisions that Toby had to do. Yeah. But he didn't yeah. fucking direct it. It doesn't even look I don't want to get into it. It doesn't even We're look not like a fucking Spielberg movie at all. Because this Spielbergness does get attributed to, I mean, I've heard people be like, oh, didn't Spielberg direct Back to the Future? I mean, you know, like if you see his name before anyone else, I mean. Yes, but if the, the, I do, I will say, I've, I've had the opportunity to turn that around a couple times, even before this, which now I will be doing very intensely <laughs> after this deep dive. But even then, I've been like, oh, you've missed out on how biting the humor is in this movie. And that's not a slack on Spielberg. Comedies like biting comedy is just not what he does. No. It is not what he does. But I'm like, if if that comes across the Spielberg movie, give that another watch because you've missed out on how mean and smart that movie is. Yeah, absolutely. God, I have to Indiana Jones in a haunted mansion. Damn. Fuck. Yep. We can all dream what that could have been. But anyway, this writer wasn't with us long. Uh, yep. but, but uh, romancing the stone one of the great oddities of studio filmmaking yes they gave us romancing the stone now this is zemeckis desperately needing a, a, a win yes um, and so much so like he i didn't know this till today either but i guess um while they were making this he was signed on to direct cocoon right and then the studio made him let them watch a rough cut of Romancing the Stone. And they were like, uh, you're off. We've got this. We've got this guy from Happy Days. He says he's down. <laughs> so little Ronnie Howard's going to direct Cocoon instead. Also, give me fucking Zemeckis' Cocoon. Also that. But we get it later, arguably. Anyway. Yeah, we do. Or at least parts of it. We get parts, parts of it. it. But anyway, so Romancing the Stone's not going great in theory while it's being made not going great it's uh this is a movie that is largely shot on location in south america that <laughs> you just burns your history you that <laughs> has problems generally when you try to make a movie over there um but they they persisted and what they delivered is a pretty yeah like will said a pretty crafty smart little what's it of a movie almost because and this goes into my thing my theory of him always trying to like reference the spielberg uh canon obviously right here he's probably referencing raiders of the lost ark or trying to like you know, find something there that's um, not, not just referencing the boy lampoons <laughs> yeah he, i was gonna say he does really turn the plot of that on its head yeah um, and we won't reveal why because maybe you'll see it soon on the big screen or you've seen this movie because most people have seen Romancing the Stone. Especially if you're, if you're a certain okay. age, you've definitely seen Romancing the Stone. Yeah. There's a big TNT repeat. Yo, um, always on. Yeah. This movie, my mom, my mom didn't ever really like 
like my mom was always really cool but she was never like the type that would like bring a film to me and say john you have to see this she just kind of let me do what i wanted she wouldn't let me watch r-rated movies she did let me watch caddyshack because she (laughs) loved caddyshack totally forgot that i got you know there's some boobies and then uh, I loved that. There's some stuff in there. Yeah, there is. So I love that we were the same. I didn't know that. My parents were the same. I was only allowed Blazing Saddles and Monty Python fucking Life of Brian. That's the yep, only Those other. are the other two. Are we, we maybe, yeah, we, 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 we might be related. That, that's true. Uh, we look very similar. So, um, <laughs> so people get us confused all the time. All the time. Sorry for everyone who thought I was Will at the music box a couple weeks ago. <laughs> It happens. John Morris, I'm William Dixon. We've cleared it up now. Everything's good. Well, William Dixon actually is my great, great, great grandfather who helped develop film with Thomas Edison. Are you serious? Oh, yeah. Well, that's fucked. Hell yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Damn, that's a, that's a, you've waited years to pull that flex out. <laughs> it's, that's a hard flex. <laughs> yeah, it is. That's a pretty good one. Like the guy that arguably was more the father of film than Edison. I mean, like you're, yeah. All right. Well, man, I hate to give this to you because now it's really going to be hard to fight you and stuff, but John's got lineage and movies existing. So great. That's right, God everybody. God damn it. Now it's going to have to, now it's fucking American Sniper all day, every day. It is going to be. I will get, <laughs> I'm getting American Sniper back in theaters. Don't 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 sour the end of this lovely episode. With okay, that. we're not going to talk about American Sniper today. <laughs> get to it one day. You don't have to. Whatever. We're, I'm going to. No, we'll get there. We'll get there, and we'll have a great talk. We we'll will. get there. We'll have a good time. But first, we're trying to get you on board with a an easier sell. Romancing the fucking stone. Romancing the fucking stone. So this is uh, a Kathleen Turner plays a oh. a all male uh, always body heat Vi Wachowski fucking hero of cinema. Yeah, that's hilarious of all the movies. Dude, those are my favorites. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. Everyone knows that one. <laughs> you know V.I. Wachowski. The- <laughs> Everyone's talking about V.I. Wachowski. <laughs> Dude, I that was so slept on. It's good. It's good. I, I like it's that. Good. Movie, but, uh, <laughs> no one's thinking of that, Will. <laughs> I remember um, it came out on Blu-ray only in the it, it came out through Walmart and their five dollar bin and it was I, me and the other person who was also excited that that series also put out the Ernest movies on Blu-ray. Well, there you go. <laughs> all right, what's uh, this movie? About? So yeah, so Kathleen Turner, who you all also saw probably in a movie we put on called Peggy Sue Got Married, she plays a writer of uh, women's uh, fiction paperbacks and they're kind of like adventure romance like schmaltz stuff um i'm sure zemeckis identified with this and she's yeah, cheap cheap is the word cheap paperbacks yeah that's what check she out, check out paperbacks you know right. like airplane paperbacks exactly um so she writes these and eventually she finds out that her sister played by mary ellen trainer who was also uh, zemeckis's wife yep and the star of his wonderful Tales from the Crypt episode, which we'll get to. Wow. She plays her sister, and she's being held uh, for ransom in South America. Where in South America? They are in Colombia. Yeah, it's so much this. It's like you can't even 
realize what like this movie just moves at a breakneck pace like yeah well they some of the the only reason i remember is because some of the jokes and we don't need to get into it but why i've i've had people tell me this one before they can't do because of that it's too offensive with its uh you know racially specific jokes or region specific jokes and I get so mad because not only is again, are they aware of it? And that's part of the point of this whole thing and what they're doing, but there are very Columbia specific jokes that are kind of amazing. So yeah, absolutely. Well, it's so she, um, yeah, she goes over there because she got a treasure map sent to her (laughs) and she has to go over there and give it to these people or they're going to kill her sister. So she goes to Columbia gets on the wrong bus and gets lost in the jungles of South America. She meets her Indiana Jones figure who she's been building up in her head as this fictional character, the whole movie. And he turns out to not be the great slapdash hero that you think he's going to be. And it's Michael Douglas. And they, uh, if you haven't seen it, I don't want to say more, but it definitely turns the Indiana Jones story a little on its head. Their banter, um, their banter, where they're just like both taking and flipping and pushing and pulling on like accepted societal gender roles, and it's fucking amazing. And that's what they're doing in this too. Same yeah. thing. Like both of them are just like pushing and giving and fighting, and it's awesome. Yeah, yeah maybe the gender roles will get flipped. Whoa. Whoa. No spoilers. <laughs> no so, way. There's a great scene where they uh, take refuge in an abandoned uh, plane that was a, uh, a drug mule plane. And I'm shocked you were going to bring this one up. <laughs> I, well, I just, yeah, right. Well, because I love the scene where they're, uh, yeah, where they're uh, keeping warm on the fire by throwing um, like Loads of weed. Yeah, full bricks of weed <laughs> on the, on the and fire. And throwing it on, but the first one he throws on. Like Kirk Douglas leans over it. I wish I wrote down the exact line because it's amazing, but he throws it on and leans down and then. (sighs) Yeah. (laughs) It's crazy. And then, yeah, he says, I'm going to throw another kilo on. And she's like, I'm lightheaded. Yeah. (laughs) Also found like fucking whiskey in the plane or whatever. Yes. Um, Getting crossfaded in a Zemeckis movie. Yeah. Well, and like uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, these are two women who can put their drinks away. Yes. Uh, maybe Raiders, she can handle it better, but I guess there's a famous scene demonstrating that. But in this one, our heroine uh, loves the uh, the tiny little one shot bottles that you get on airplanes, and she has a whole wonderful gag where she's got a whole cabinet just full of those that she clearly got at like promotional events and stuff. Yeah. Anyway, it's an amazing like detail to show someone and the kind of alcoholic they are because that's a special kind of drinker. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they meet Danny DeVito at one point in a role that turns him into a movie star, which is amazing. This movie, he's the fact that this shot him into the stratosphere is really weird. He doesn't very do weird. In it. He doesn't do anything. I mean, he's got the Danny DeVito charm, but he's not like, it's not like a role where you're like, he's barely oh, in it. 
Yeah, and he said, well, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's very funny that this, <laughs> but he became a bigger, I guess they expanded his role a la like the Joe Pesci and the Lethal Weapon series with uh, the sequel to this movie, Jewel of the Nile, which uh, Zemeckis had nothing to do with. So you can, um, you can tell. Yeah, it's not a bad movie, but it's not. I'm bad, but I miss. It ain't romantic in the stuff. The banter we're talking about. Yes, yes. This wonderful banter, which I'm sure uh, Zemeck has probably contributed on the script, juicing that banter up because it's really... Um, <laughs> he had to. Because yeah. it's so, again, it's that it's just too uh, it's just too well observed. And that's so much his bag. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's like great-faced delivery of really well observed things that maybe people don't love to acknowledge. Yeah. Yeah. Almost like Mike Lee. Damn, twice in this episode. I know. Okay. I know. Okay. Maybe I want to talk about him already. We're going <sighs> to. Okay. Worse. We're almost there. We're closing well, out. We're rounding so, in. So, Romancing the Stone is a hit. Is a hit. It finally it makes happened. money. It finally makes money. It, it, it's, it becomes a, a, a blockbuster, one could say. It was like fucked up big, right? Like, wasn't it crazy? Like, it, it's not what he's going to experience next, wow. but. Yeah. It's it's it, this is what got him to do the next project. Okay. This is his coming out yep. like movie. And the next film will not touch our lips until the next episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've never heard of it. You don't even know what it is. Yeah, I don't even know what it is. Uh, <laughs> but this is like an interesting like you see him at once becoming the Hollywood filmmaker he's been trying to become. But also because of the setting, you almost get an idea of like where, again, he could have gone with this exploitation side. I mean, a lot of great exploitation filmmakers from around the world shot a lot of movies in South America because it was cheap. Mm -hmm. And that's why this movie looks a little different than the rest of his, because he doesn't have the same studio lighting and contraptions. You know, he's shooting on location. And well, not location. <laughs> they are still there in Mexico. But... Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're, but they're, he's outside of, shoot, but not the accurate location. It's a, it is a location <laughs> shoot that is still like difficult. <laughs> yes. No, it was bad. Lots of lots of horrible weather and shit. It was Lots definitely bad. But yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's almost like the Hollywood has a history of these movies being made over there that have horrible <laughs> production histories. So, so yeah, this movie you do get to kind of, I think this is probably the last time that you're going to get that glimpse of him as the exploitation. Now he does do some horror stuff coming up, but we have moments in movies that we'll highlight when we get there, but we never have another full ass thing Yeah, where seemingly where they started with whatever that script for Bordello of Blood originally looked like before Dennis Miller cooked it out. I mean, but what, (laughs) you know, what have we learned here? We've, I guess we've just learned that we're excited. We've learned. We, we've what we've learned is that you never give up that's right you never give up you keep taking the l's even though they're fully funded studio l's you yeah. keep taking those l's <laughs> well i mean he was in danger at this point of like probably never or making like very low budget stuff Do- certain doors were not going to open for him at this point if he did not have a hit yeah yeah, Hollywood is littered with like, filmmakers that didn't make hits that just disappeared. In this movie, this this was there was no Spielberg on production of this one too. Which oh, I know. That's just what I mean. Shocking. I really think yeah. he. Well, because wait, where's the time? What what year is Romancing? I think it's eighty one. 
So did ET come out already though? That's what matters. Yeah, so it's eighty-four. Wait, is that big of a gap? Yeah, no, there's because he was that's when he was in like movie jail, essentially. Right. Because he just like couldn't, you know, there was nothing that he could get attached to. Like yeah, he, no, okay. So wait, we got, our, I guess like the closing shout out then is a, a small, even though we love him, a little fuck you to Stevie then. Cause if that's the year this came out. Well, 81 is Raiders of the Lost Ark. So yeah, Raiders and then ET. 82 is ET. 80, 82 is also when he did production work on Poltergeist. Um, that's 83 is the Twilight Zone movie, one of his worst. Uh, oh, maybe his that's May, okay, well, not not even that. Just what happened? Maybe that's why he was like, "I'm sad today." You make this. Movie. Yeah, we just killed some kids. On like, the do you guys know this guy? Do you know this guy named Johnny Landis? Yeah, you think he's bad? You should see his son. I don't want to talk about that bitch. I'm Who sad. I know him. I'm I sad. Him. I know that motherfucker. I, yeah, he's a piece of shit. Well, it, it, this is interesting because at this time in Spielberg's career in '84, he is he's made now. Uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which was pretty divisive when it came out. It, it made mm-hmm. its money, but yeah, I, I, I think yeah. The- I guess he's probably in a weird place because he truly was involved with something where people died, children died. <laughs> I, yeah, well, and he'd also worked with he was working with Joe Dante at this point now because Gremlins had come out the year before. Yeah, shit, that's right. Okay, yeah, so he's fucked up on the Amblin stuff. Life's weird. All right, I'll give Life's it to him. Weird, and I think he's just and saying, he him. maybe Bobby, that. You handle like, you're on your own. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like I can't. Look, I'm gonna take the training wheels off. I've seen you ride that fucking bike over that hill so many times. You got it. He had it. Yeah, he'll come back maybe two more time. times. Yeah, and he'll come really, back. really as a good friend. As a yep. very good friend. Um, so yeah, you know, he he yeah, he was having issues, I think, with the MPAA at this point. Because mm-hmm. it's the first PG 13 movie, is a Temple of Doom. So um I know. So I always forget. So it, it turns out Zemeckis didn't need the help. Box office. Um, Romancing with Stone was expected to flop. To um, yeah, that right. He got fired off of Cocoon, as Will mentioned. It was 20th Century Fox only hit, big hit of '84. Um, really, it, it yeah. grossed 115 mil worldwide. Wow. And what was it like? Ten to make or something? How much did it cost? Um, it's, it's budget was 10. Damn. Oh, yeah. I guess you're doing pretty well when you add 105 mil to the studio. I guess they're going to be like, all right, they're not, we'll let you do another one. Yep. They're like, okay, maybe, maybe you were right. All right. And it's his first collaboration with Alan Silvestri. Yep. Will be his. They met, right? Just doing that. Silvestri was already on it, right? Yep. And so Silvestri and, and uh, our boy will for fucking ever in line working. So so here we are. We uh, the studio head, I think Sid Scheinberg told, I think it's Sid Scheinberg or maybe it was someone else, but whoever was in the studio head at that time said you had a hit. Now go home, pour yourself a glass of scotch, and we'll talk tomorrow. And tomorrow is just around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> next time we meet we will uh we're gonna see what happened to robert zemeckis at this point does he get more success does he fail and have to climb back out 
does he get so much success that he becomes a watered down filmmaker or does he take that success get a little watered down but also find ways to sneak his wily personality into everything he will touch from here on out yep you know i guess we'll find out i guess we'll find out so thank until you until then think about nancy allen and i want to hold your hand and then again think about nancy allen no and nancy allen doesn't like me yeah well she likes me she likes well, john <laughs> yes she does yes so <laughs> this may not be the end of nancy allen with us but never never for right now this is the end of her with zemeckis though i so, have her email still i just don't think she'd answer it i'll email her <laughs> Baby, you don't know what you do to me Between me and you, I feel like chemistry I won't let no one come and take your place Cause the love you give, it can't be replaced Your love is a